0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 25, Shell Cottage. Bill and Fleur's cottage stood alone on a cliff overlooking the sea, its walls embedded with shells and whitewashed. It was a lonely and beautiful place. Wherever Harry went inside the tiny cottage or its garden. I'm Vanessa Zoltan.
3: And I'm Kasper Kyle,
2: And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. I want to be invited to this cottage. It sounds like it's in Cornwall.
3: <laughs> that will probably be pirates. But pirates are not as good as patrons, especially Amy January, Jay Lubo, Kate Lawrence, Jessica Bruno and Kathleen Kelly. And if Kathleen Kelly is your actual name, then you have the name of the character in you've got mail, the greatest movie ever made. And that is awesome. <laughs>
2: Um, patrons aren't just better than pirates they're like literally the opposite of pirates
3: <laughs> well they certainly are and we want to give a special shout out to all our patrons this week we've noticed a little drop off in patron subscriptions and it's probably because at the end of the month if you've changed your card or your card is updated the details are incorrect in patrons so please make sure that your details are up to date in patreon it makes a huge difference to us and our capacity to keep going with the podcast. So thank you, everyone, for supporting the show. We so appreciate it.
2: And our local group this week is from the Baltimore-Annapolis area, and they are the Fire Crabs run by Kayla Roebuck. And I will say that the Baltimore-Annapolis area is beautiful. I miss going places.
3: Travel, places, people, (laughs) People. friends. (laughs) One day.
2: So, Casper, picture this. Little Vanessa is nine years old. Her family is going through a hard time and she thinks to herself, I know how I can make things easier. I can cook dinner. She decides to make something that involves melted cheese. Mm. So she melts the cheese as you do in the microwave. She goes to take the cheese out of the microwave and she goes, wait, wait, this is going to be hot. So she grabs a dish towel. Someone calls her name and she turns and says, what? Thus tipping the boiling cheese on her hand. (gasps) Oh! So instead of making her family's life easier, her mother takes her to the emergency room where she's diagnosed with second and third degree burns. I had my hands like wrapped in gauze. I go to school the next day and everybody's like, oh my God, what happened? Oh my God, what happened? And I am like very curmudgeonly being like, I burnt myself. But of course I tell Kim, my best friend, what happened. And I'm like, but you can't tell anyone. And she was like, of course not. Then later that day, I'm waiting for Carpool to pick me up. And some kid comes by and goes, hey, whiz kid. And I was like, what? And he was like, I heard that you burnt your hand with cheese whiz. And I was like, oh. so I marched right up to Kim and I said, I can't believe you told. And she was like, I didn't. And I was like, you were the only person I told And now freaking Josh Glass knows how I burnt my hand. You told. Like completely doubting that she was the kind of best friend I thought she was. And so she and I are standing waiting for Carpool crying. I have my two gauzed hands. She's telling me I didn't tell anyone. And I'm like, yes, you did. I can't believe you did. I thought you were my best friend. And David, my brother, walks up to me and goes, what are you, what's going on? And so I tell him, I was like, I told Kim not to tell anyone how I burnt my hands. And she did. And David was like, oh, I didn't know we weren't supposed to tell. I told people. No. I know betrayal and what's amazing to me looking back is how quickly i doubted like such a loyal and amazing person in my life like it didn't matter that she had never betrayed me and had always been wonderful to me i had one piece of data which was josh glass calling me whiz kid and it caused me to doubt everything about my friendship with kim And David had done something totally innocent. I hadn't told him not to tell anybody. And people asked him, how'd your sister hurt her hands? And he told them. And I think that that speaks to all of our vulnerability. One hint of something bad can occur to us. And suddenly our faith in humanity, right? Kim and David, the two people who I trust most in the world, just crumbled under the slightest pressure And I think that that's one of the things about doubt. We live with it all the time and it is an important accompanier. I think it's what keeps us from being taken advantage of and it keeps us from being brainwashed by things, but it can also creep into the cracks of places that it can really cause a lot of destruction. Luckily, Kim and I have gotten through the Cheese Whiz incident of nineteen ninety.
3: But did Josh Glass? Because I feel like really this whole series should be called Josh Glass and the Sacred Text.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Who knew when we started this podcast that I would settle scores? So many scores from the 1990s.
3: (laughs) But before we settle any other scores from a couple decades ago, let's do a 30 second recap. (laughs) And I think it's my turn to go first.
2: Okay, on your mark, get set, go.
3: So this is really like a planning episode chapter where they're kind of strategizing about, okay, how are we going to get into. the bank because grip has agreed to say yes and um bill is like i know you're up to something like be careful of goblins and um grip is like i will do it but only if you give me the sword and harry's like well mm, maybe and her mind is like okay you must do it and ron's like no we'll trick him and then harry's like we'll trick him just a little bit <laughs> um and then harry goes to like have some beautiful vistas outside and then um lupin arrives and says he has a baby and harry's the godfather
2: Watch you stroke them a little, little bit.
3: <laughs> <laughs> All right, thirty seconds on the clock for you. Here we go. Three, two, one.
2: Ron is like I think we should have gone after the Elder Wand and Hermione is like I'm really glad we're going for the Horcruxes and Harry's like I'm annoyed with you Ron for disagreeing with me but also it kind of annoys me Hermione that you're agreeing with me and they go into negotiations with Griphook and they're really doing a lot of planning for how to get the thing out of the vault and um, and then Lupin comes and is like Tonks had a baby and everyone's like oh my god congratulations congratulations and they have a couple of drinks and, um, and then Ollivander and everyone is going to go to Muriel's except for Griphook and uh, Harry's the godfather And he's like, I'm going to be as bad of a godfather as as serious serious was to me, (laughs) which I think really speaks to how important it is to model things for the young.
3: So, Vanessa, I feel like we have to start with the very, very opening paragraph. Now, you know me, I get excited when the theme that we've chosen (laughs) shows up in the text. But boy, what about twice in the opening paragraph? And just to remind everyone at home, we don't pick this to like know what's in the text. We just pick the theme and then, then get surprised. So let me just read you the exact sentence. He was full of doubts. Doubts that Ron could not help voicing whenever they were together, and this refers to the decision that he's just made between Hallows and Horcruxes. And as you said in your thirty-second recap, Ron keeps being like, "Dude, what if we made the wrong choice?" What, but 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 it was maybe the wrong choice. And so Harry has like settled, but he's unsettled because Ron keeps interrupting and voicing those doubts out loud. But the thing that I want to ask you about: what can we learn about where doubt comes from from this interaction between Harry and Ron?
2: I mean, I think that this is just one version of where doubt comes from. I think that humans' capacity for doubt is almost as endless, I would say, as their capacity for love. And I think doubt is a really important emotional mechanism, right? When we realize that we've had too much power or an amount of power that we are uncomfortable with of I don't want to be the one who decides whether this kid gets into college or I don't want to be the one who decides horcruxes over hallows. I think that doubt is a way of processing us feeling as though we've been handed too much power or that we are suddenly acutely aware of the power that we have had for a while. What we saw in the last chapter was Harry step into his power as a leader of saying, I'm making Mm. the decision and I'm doing it without consulting Ron and Hermione I have the most information. And and he was confident in that for a moment. And now he's doing the thing that I think all leaders do, right? Like in the dark hours of the night, which is doubt that they made the right decision. And I think that, you know, Ron is just externalizing that. I don't think Ron is doing anything bad or mean spirited. I think it's actually really important in the team of rivals sense to have like a a cabinet of people who are rigorously disagreeing with you and questioning you even after it's too late to go back and be like never mind let's go after the elder wand because it'll help you make a better decision next time.
3: Yeah, I think you're so right that Ron is not a destructive force here because Hermione is agreeing with Harry and his reaction to her is exactly the same because he's in this place of doubt and so anyone offering certainty either way is frustrating. Or at least he he can see the problems with anyone's certainty. To me it's interesting that Harry is leaving the house when this moment happens in this opening scene. He wants to get out of the the safety even of the building and go to a place where he can see the horizon. Like he's looking for perspective. And I think that's one of the things that doubt helps us do is it pushes us to see things from a different angle or to get out of the story that we've been living in and to just to think about a problem differently or to think about someone else's perspective. So it was interesting to me that that happens physically in this moment as well, that he's literally, he just wants to be able to breathe. Like his mind needs that space and time just to like take a minute.
2: Yeah. It's something, you know, when I'm doubting a decision after I made it, I will often call my mother similar to Harry in that I'm agitated and want to take it out on someone. So I call my mom to be (laughs) mad at her that I made a decision. And a fraught moment that she and I always have in these situations is she will say to me, it'll be fine. And I always say back, no, it'll be, it'll unfold. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it will be fine. That doesn't necessarily mean that Harry's going to find all the horcruxes. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are going to defeat Voldemort. And nor does it mean that he made the wrong decision. That is the tension that doubt is playing. It's saying. We don't know how this will unfold yet. And I think what we do with doubt in those moments can either be productive or really, really destructive. And I'm wondering if you can help me figure out when we should interrupt and be like, do you know what? I made the decision. We're moving forward. Or when we're like, yes, Ron, tell me why it was maybe the wrong decision. When are we productively processing? And when are we just torturing ourselves?
3: You know, I wonder if there's, I don't want to say the answer, but an an answer for us in the text. When Lupin arrives, we hear a knock at the door. And of course, the first instinct is danger. And so everyone in the room like takes out their wand and there's a series of passwords and pieces of evidence that Lupin gives to prove himself that helps open everyone's hearts and say, okay, this this is Lupin and indeed it is. And so I'm wondering if one answer to your question of like when to doubt, when not to doubt is set up systems or set up pieces of evidence or or, or safety points that help you confirm or check or go through the rigor of, of a safety process. And then if that works, go with it. Because you can't live with every door knock and everyone who's answered every password correctly and still doubt them and, like, nearly kill them as they enter the door because that's no way to live. And so if you've done your due diligence, maybe once in a blue moon someone's going to get through that door and it would be horrible. But in this instance, I feel like they've done what they can and they welcome Lupin in and they're, they're grateful for it. So I don't know if there's something in there for us.
2: Yeah, I mean, I see a similar thing in the dynamic between Harry and Fleur, when Harry says to Fleur, I'm so sorry we're here, and she says to him, basically, I've decided to trust you a long time ago. You saved my sister. And Harry is like, I don't really save your sister. I don't think that Fleur is misunderstanding the situation. I don't think Fleur is hinging all of this on, I owe you because you literally saved my sister's life. Mm. I think what Fleur is saying is, I did a check. I saw your character. You were never going to let my sister die. I know you. And like, I'm going to follow you and trust you. And I think that until Harry gives her a real reason to doubt him again, she won't. But yeah, it's a scary thing. Even that Fleur is doing like Harry is making her a higher target. Maybe should she should be doubting whether or not it's a good idea to protect all of them. But she's decided not to. She's just decided to move that doubt about Harry off the table.
3: And in some ways, we see Lupin do that with Harry as well, right? They've just had this big fight. And when he asks Harry to be Godfather, Harry describes it as like all of that just melting away, like it all being water under the bridge. And there's that sense of confidence in one another's character in exactly the way that you're pointing to.
0: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com.
2: This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimald Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin, Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Casper, I would like for you to help me make meaning of this moment. Now, I acknowledge that I am super sensitive about Grip Hook, but why is it disgusting that Grip Hook likes raw meat, but fine that Bill does? Mm-hmm. I think that the fact that Grip Hook likes raw meat is supposed to force us to like cast aspersions on him and be like, ugh, I doubt that I should trust him at all. He's disgusting. But Bill, it's like, well, we know why. You know, it's not his fault. He was bitten. And there just seems to be a lack of doubt in the texts. And I think by the text, right, we mean Harry and Harry's judgment of hook versus Bill. Harry doesn't like Griphook, so it's gross the way he eats meat, but he loves Bill. And so it's not gross. And I just think we see that bias of mm-hmm. when we allow our doubts of somebody to just like make us hate them and sort of build a case against them, whereas we can see the literal same piece of evidence on the person sitting right next to them at the dinner table and be like, yes, but that's an exception.
3: Yeah. And even in some small way, I think that's echoed in the very final lines of the chapter where, again, we see the word doubt, which is so fun, where Harry, and this is the text, a wry thought came over him, born no doubt of the wine he had drunk. And he's basically thinking of himself like Sirius and... It's sort of like a, oh, jovial reminder of this loving godfather. But actually, if you had real doubt in that moment, in the same way that you're pointing us to think about with the the description of Griphook, Sirius was a super challenging, difficult character whose flaws seem to be wiped away very easily in Harry's memory here. And so I completely agree that that sense of whom, whom do we doubt, whom do we not doubt, is a question worthy of investigating.
2: So I I think another place of doubt is, you know, still in this Griphook-Harry conversation or this Wizards-Goblins conversation. So when they're negotiating with Griphook, Harry pulls Hermione aside and says, you know, Griphook just told me that Wizards have stolen things from goblins, specifically the Sword of Godric Gryffindor was not Gryffindor's. Gryffindor stole it. Is that true? And Hermione is like, I never heard that, but that does not mean it's not true. And then at the end of the chapter, we see this conversation with Bill and Harry, which you told us about, where Bill is like, goblins have a different understanding of ownership than we do. I think that the way that that metaphor sort of works out is that imperialism was wrong. If Godric Gryffindor stole the sword, that was bad, bad Gryffindor. Bad England stealing the Elgin marbles. But those Greeks have a really messed up way of understanding ownership. We have it now. So now they want it back. Those are the kinds of things that I'm worried that we're going to leave doubt behind in. Like I would love if systems regularly doubted themselves and were like, oh, we have the sort of Godric Gryffindor. Maybe Gryffindor did steal it. Maybe we should really dig into the history and find out what happened here. And I'm just worried that once things become totally rote, once a story gets written, we stop doubting.
3: Yeah, that's so true. I mean, we we see that in the text. Like, Harry says he had always been proud to be a Gryffindor. Like, there's that sense of, of lingering unpleasantness, but it doesn't change him to, like, challenge some fundamental stories or principles about what a Gryffindor, being a Gryffindor, really means. So I think you're right. Like, that sense of doubtlessness <laughs> is dangerous. There's facts that don't fit into the narrative.
2: Yeah, and then doubting in inappropriate moments is completely dangerous, right? Doubting mid-surgery, you know, what to do. Like that's the last thing we want a surgeon to be doing. And so I think that Harry is right. Now is not the time to be doubting the ownership of the Sword of Gryffindor. It's the only tool he has to beat an imminent foe. (laughs) But I, I hope that sort of in the 19 years between this moment and the end of the book, He's taken some time to reckon with that and he has done some sort of lecture series on the history <laughs> of Gryffindor and, and, and he and Hermione have gotten together and done a lot of research. To me, doubt might be a lot about timing.
3: Mm, I love that. Vanessa, we're continuing our spiritual practice of Florilegia this week. And I just love looking for sparklets in the text. It's always such a wonderful way to read a text. And I wonder what you've chosen for us this week and where it comes from.
2: I chose Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame.
3: Ooh, where is that from in the chapter?
2: It is when Harry, Ron, and Hermione are um, having the conversation about how they can sort of deal with grip hooks, wanting the sword, but they're needing the sword. And Hermione is like, oh, I wonder why goblins don't trust wizards. And Harry looks at her and it says that he met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. What about you, Casper? What did you pick?
3: I picked, you were an inexpressible comfort to me in that terrible place which is Mr. Ollivander coming down to dinner just before he's he's leaving. And he's saying that to Luna, who's saying goodbye. It's so sweet. So lovely, right? Yeah, and and maybe we can move to that, which is I chose this because it illustrates a couple things. One is that he's describing Malfoy Manor as that terrible place. I mean, he, the word inexpressible is the clue. For him, It's it's beyond the horrors that he could have imagined. And we know that he was there for a long time. The depth of his suffering comes through for me in in this sentence. And at the same time that we learn how bad it was, we learn how good Luna was, right? The comfort of her kindness. I feel like she was not just present, but she was a presence to him. And if we think about attention as being the way in which we, make something sacred. I feel like that's what Luna was doing with and and for Mr. Ollivander. So that inexpressibility is both of the terror of the place and the comfort that Luna gave him. I I just love those two things together. How about you? Why, Why did you choose your sentence of Harry's eyes meeting Hermione's with a mixture of defiance and shame?
2: I just, I think that this is the exact right response to this idea that he's had. I wish that it was communicated more clearly. And I wish that they had said, look, hook, we need to keep it. We need to destroy the seven horcruxes. I promise I'll give it to you, right? Like, I do yeah. think there might have been a better way, but I understand why they shy away from it. And so I think defiance and shame are, are sort of the two right emotions that Harry should be feeling. And I, it speaks to me of the importance of intimate friendship that I think by himself, he wouldn't necessarily think to reflect on this. He would just decide and move forward. But there's something about locking eyes with someone who you love and trust that can make you check in with your emotions and be like, look, it's the right thing to do. And yes, I'm ashamed of it. And so, yeah, it just speaks to me of the importance of community and the beauty of like real friendship. I love that. And that friendship doesn't always mean that you feel good, right? It's not like thank you for validating me. Like <laughs> friendship can sometimes make you check in with a little bit of shame and and that's okay too.
3: I'm already excited about putting these two together because I'm starting to see connections. So let me read for you the two of them together. Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. You were an inexpressible comfort to me in that terrible place.
2: Oh my God. It's Harry looking at her being like, I couldn't help you while you are getting tortured but I am ashamed of that and Hermione saying back to him while I was being tortured in Malfoy Manor knowing that you were down there upset was an inexpressible comfort to me mm. like I always knew that you were going to do everything you could to get to me I knew that every time she cruciated me you felt it in your bones
3: Ooh! See, my imagination went to the like the months without Ron, the kind of oh. the two of them in a tent, where it, that was a terrible place for Harry. And just like Luna Hermione was this presence of encouragement and and not telling hopeful stories about how everything was going to work out okay, but just this this continued presence, which I I just love. There's something about the eye gazing or the or the eye contact that seems really important here. Harry meets her eyes. So Hermione or or Luna is already looking at Mr. Ollivander at Mm -hmm. Harry. And it's this turn to meet that eye gaze, which feels like a, I know it has that defiance and that vulnerability of shame, but also a confidence in the relationship. Like nothing bad is going to happen. If I look into your eyes, you're just going to see the fullness of what I'm feeling. That feels really generous in, in both those kind of, dyads, those, those two connections.
2: Yeah. Should we flip them?
3: All right. Let's see what comes up this time.
2: You were an inexpressible comfort to me in that terrible place. Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. I think what it makes me think of are the difficult moments when someone brings up a bad memory like mm. you were in inexpressible comfort to me in that terrible place. And it's like, I don't want to think about that terrible place right now. I can just imagine someone saying something like that to me and being like, I don't want to think about it. And I didn't do enough.
3: That's so interesting. I've not actually thought about Luna's experience enough in, in Balfoy Manor. And we learn a little bit that she was taken off the Hogwarts Express, right? Like we we get a little snippet into her experience over the last year or so. And so maybe she's not just tending Dobby's grave, as we see her do in this chapter for, for Dobby. Maybe that's a way for her to get out of the house and away from everyone else, and you know, just have some time for herself. I, I gosh, I hadn't even thought about it that way. The other thing that stands out, Vanessa, from the two sentences together, you know, I'd pointed to that theme of attention and the way in which our presence and our attention with someone or something helps reveal its sacredness or or, or make it sacred. I feel like in, in your sentence, that's really true as well. Harry met her eyes with a mixture of defiance and shame. And although defiance is challenging and shame is an unpleasant experience, it's the meeting of the eyes that I keep going back to. And that that sense of presence that we can have with one another when we're looking into one another's eyes and honestly the sometimes overtly intimate experience that you can have if you're looking into the eyes of someone that you don't know very well. You know how they do those kind of eye gazing exercises on retreats or or whatever. If it doesn't feel good, it can feel really awkward. But sometimes I found myself like breaking through that awkwardness and getting into a place where like I'll just weep because there's such a gentleness or such a that loving presence that just gives space for everything that is to just be—I don't know—I'm—I'm I'm suddenly thinking of the gift of that kind of quality of presence. It's enriching the image of the way I look at Ollivander and Luna together, right? Like maybe they just spend every day spending five minutes looking into each other's eyes, right? I think about parents looking into the eyes of their kids, at, you know, before they go full asleep, or lovers as they have to say goodbye. Like just that tenderness in eye contact is something that is so—that's such a gift.
2: Eye contact is one of those things that's really hard for me, much like hand-holding. As soon as it starts happening, I'm like, when is it going to end? I'm just like, am I going to hurt your feelings if I stop holding your hand? Are you going to hurt my feelings if you stop holding my hand? If I look away, am I weaker? Like, I find all of that so stressful. And so I think that I'm more of a Mr. Ollivander of, like, wanting to verbally try to express the inexpressible. Like, there's something beautiful about what Harry and Hermione are up to here. And there's just something much more relatable to me about what Ollivander's up to here. Like, you, Luna, you weirdo, with your, like, eye contact and your hand holding and all that beautiful stuff. I can't do that. But I will say that I know I can't even tell you how much it meant to me.
3: I was going to say, he's leaving Luna behind, but he's going into Muriel's house. So just (laughs) get ready, Ollivander. (laughs) thanks Vanessa
2: thank you Casper this week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimald Place so you need to find a new home if you're like me you would go to Redfin Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations. So finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. Redfin, it's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started.
0: Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time.
3: This week's voicemail is from Maurice.
1: Hi, Vanessa, Casper, and Ariana. My name is Maurice, and I am calling you the morning after the presidential election. I'm a queer Black woman, and for months, I've been increasingly anxious about the election, not just about the results, but about post-election violence from white supremacists, which our president has explicitly endorsed. I don't know what's going to happen, so I've packed a go bag, I've stocked up on food, anything I can do to feel safe. Hearing you discuss book seven, I realize this is exactly what Hermione has done the whole book. She has a go bag packed and with her at all times, not just for her, but also for Harry and Ron. When Death Eaters arrive at Xenophilius Lovegood's, she immediately places the invisibility cloak over Ron to protect his family. And then when snatchers arrive, she immediately hexes Harry so that he's unrecognizable. And yes, of course, Hermione is brilliant, but for the first time, I am realizing how deeply anxious she must be as well to be constantly thinking about the ways that she and her chosen family might be hurt and how she can protect them. And I think that this is because Hermione is a muggle-born, unlike Harry and Ron. Um, She... In, in some ways is in more danger than them because she's not the chosen one and she doesn't have family to fall back on. So I would like to offer a blessing for anyone, but particularly for Black folks and other people of color who are feeling anxious and scared about our current situation right now and who is worried about violence happening to them or their families. I see you, and I pray that we make it through this.
2: Maurice, we are recording this about six days before the episode comes out, so I really, really hope that this is resolved by the time that you are hearing our response. But yeah, I think, right, like all burdens fall harder on more vulnerable populations, and Trump in his presidency has made queer people of color and many other populations more vulnerable than they've been in a really long time. And I love that you are calling our attention to the power that Hermione pulls from that and her brilliance. And I also love that you are pointing us to the fact that that is a burden. So thank you so much for that blessing.
3: Thank you, Maurice.
2: So Casper, it's now time to offer blessings. Who would you like to bless this week?
3: I want to bless Fleur, We've spent so much time in this chapter and in this episode thinking about Griphook and the ownership of the Sword of Gryffindor, which even that name (laughs) says so much, right? Rather than that, it's the the Sword of Ragnarok the First. I think how easy it would have been for Fleur to just keep the tiara she was wearing on her wedding day. Wedding day was just a disaster. Everyone had to escape as quickly as possible. There's every reason that it could have just like fallen into a big pile of things and, and never to be returned. And so her instinct to return it to Muriel, who is not someone who's been particularly welcoming or a joyful presence in her life, to me says, at least there's a glimmer of hope that we want to do the right thing. And I can imagine that in a situation where a goblin had shown up and said, I'm Ragnuk's descendant, (laughs) that tiara belongs to me. I don't know, maybe Fleur would have been the one to lead the wizarding world and say like, yeah, I want to right the wrong And Muriel can suck it. That's what I'm imagining Flem might be capable of.
2: Muriel is off hosting the resistance. Let's not come down too hard on Auntie Muriel, who is grumpy, but is literally opening her home to some of the most target begetting people.
3: Absolutely. As is Fleur. And I think that's what I want to celebrate in Fleur is just her willingness to do good things without being explained why she has to do it. And even going beyond in a difficult situation to return the tiara so so open heartedly. So how about you, Vanessa?
2: I want to bless Tonks.
3: Yay.
2: I have a lot of friends who are pregnant right now. Two of my very best friends friends are pregnant right now. And I know a lot of women have had babies since March and people are having babies in the middle of a pandemic, right? In the middle of just an incredibly, incredibly stressful time. And so I just want to bless the resilience of mothers. And like Tonk seems, right? Like Lupin is celebrating. It doesn't seem as though the vibe back at home is like, oh no, what world did we bring this child into? The vibe is like, Cool. He's going to be a metamorphagus like his mom. And I just I guess I hope for moms out there that they get some of that celebration, too. I know it's a really hard time to be pregnant and be a mom. It always is. But right now, I think is especially hard. And so I just like to offer a blessing for moms and hope that you find moments of joy like Tonks does.
3: You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook common room. Join one of our local groups and please join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. This show exists because of our patrons and we are so, so grateful. You can always leave us a review on iTunes and send us a voicemail.
2: Next week, we'll be reading chapter 26, Gringotts, through the theme of time. This episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text was produced by Not Sorry Productions, our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull, and we are distributed by ACAST. We want to thank Maurice for this week's voicemail, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltian, Megan Kelly, whose birthday was last week, and Stephanie Paulsell. Happy birthday, Megan! Happy birthday, Megan! Just trick them a little, little bit.
3: (laughs) Just a little bit.
2: (laughs) Just a baby trick. Just a baby, tiny
3: little trick. (laughs) Look over here! Look over here! Oh, I tricked you! (laughs) I still do that when there's like Maltesers or like delicious things in a bowl, and mine is finished, and someone else still has some, and I'm like, oh, look behind you, and then I eat all the things out of that bowl.
2: (laughs) So you still thieve?
3: (laughs) Only just a little (laughs) thing.